Hello, welcome back to Anime on the Sea to Sky. We are finally getting into the middle of September, where the heat is finally starting to die down. At least on the West Coast, we're getting into the low 20s, which is a lot more manageable than it was three weeks ago, considering that August continuously, like, ramped up. Always gave us a false sense of hope that, you know, summer would finally be starting to die down, the heat would have actually become more manageable, and we would have been able to have a nice transition leading into the rest of it. But... At least through the past couple of weeks, we ended up finally getting our first piece of forest fires and blowing smoke leading ourselves along down the west coast, coming in through Washington as well as burning through parts of the Okanagan where all the smoke was able to transition and cover all of us sitting here on the coast. And even though that's incredibly horrible at the time, the only silver lining to look out on this is that this is the first piece of real smoke and pollution that's crossed its way over through the rest of it, and it held out until September for that to happen. I understand that the forest fires are definitely getting worse as and more frequent as time goes on, but at least we had a little bit of a brief reprieve and things are slowly but surely getting better. Not in the long term, mind you, but by comparison, this was a better summer than most. But besides that, as things are winding down for the summer anime season, as we're getting closer and closer to the rumblings that are being created by the setup of the fall lineup, at least we have a couple of opportunities for shows in the anime sphere, as well as just tangentially related to it, to at least give us a couple of opportunities to watch a couple of different shows in a rather lackluster season. But before we get into that, at least I'll point out a couple of things, since relatively speaking, it was a real busy last two weeks in terms of anime news, and, you know, anime-adjacent stuff too, considering that at least there, through the Emmys, I don't watch them at all, to be fair. I only go through and watch it. Like, all the the regular award shows coming out nowadays are definitely something that doesn't really come into the public eye, unless something crazy like Will Smith happens, but that's beside the point. At least for uh, animated television specifically, coming out of the Primetime Emmy Awards, we at least ended up getting a, um, an award leading into Love, Death, and Robots, considering that they ended up winning the animated anthology series, as well as Outstanding Short-Form Animated Program, considering that one of its episodes, Jubaro, which I believe is the last one, and easily, like, one of the most out there and creative and just fantastical pieces inside of the entire anthology, I would definitely give that the award if I could. So they ended up coming through and uh, taking home the victory on that one. And another one of the animated shorts coming out of Star Wars Visions, which was The Duel, also got nominated in the same category for Outstanding Short Form. And, like, easily that was the best one. I mean, Studio Trigger ended up doing one which I believe was called The Twins, and that was really good for the onset. But if you, like, the only disappointing thing about Star Wars Visions is that the first one was easily the best out of uh, the rest of it. Now, there weren't any anime that were that received any nominations, but outside of that, Arcane did end up winning the award for Outstanding Animated Program category. And at least the day of recording this and leading into uh, the release of this episode, we got another Chainsaw Man animated trailer, and as well as that, we got an official release date, considering that Chainsaw Man is going to premiere on October 11th. And then on top of that, the official North American premiere is going to be held at New York Comic Con on October 7th, 12.45 Eastern Standard Time. Now, I'm not going to be able to go through. I've never really been to a Comic Con at all. Haven't been to San Diego, haven't been to New York. Definitely understandable how easily the biggest and most hyped animated product is going to be getting an initial release, especially at an event as large as that. So that's not surprising, but... 
I'm really curious to see how that's going to line up and the more and more I look at it, the more and more I believe that nothing is ever going to be able to live up to the hype that it was given, but at the very least we can be guaranteed that thanks to Fujimoto's involvement that this is going to be easily one of the most entertaining shows of the year. And there are a lot of films coming out, uh, or at least that have come out in the past two weeks, which would be, you know, Goodbye Dong Lee's. We've also had the Odd Taxi in the Woods uh, film that finally ended up getting released on Crunchyroll. And then Drifting Home, which is done by the same director as Penguin Highway. That's also going to be an interesting one the, that I'll be able to watch on Netflix, but I just still need to find the opportunity to go through. I finally ended up getting through the main title that we're going to be talking about today, and that was the priority to at least get this episode out in a timely manner. So I'm still going to be, have a couple of things to go through, and then even after that I'm going to be doing a rewatch of the Tatami Galaxy because I know that already the, the sequel to that series has just recently been coming out week by week. So September is definitely a good way to get us eased into the fall season with all of these classics, all of these highly anticipated sequels, and all these ridiculously well-animated pieces that are attributed to other various properties that have been lining up and popping down on Netflix, on Crunchyroll, and even theaters as well. But then to top it all off, we finally get an official release and date for the One Piece Red film that's going to be coming out in Australia and New Zealand on November 3rd, as well as in North America in, on November 4th. All of those tickets are going to go on sale on October 5th, and about, yeah, yeah, about a month before the release date. I haven't seen a single One Piece film. Hell, I haven't, you know, watched a lot of One Piece. I've only been hearing, like, a lot of rumblings about how big and how... Co well, controversial is not really the right way to put the watermark, but it's like... Giga definitely put it best where it was apparently the some of the best highs of One Piece as well as some of the most dragged out lows. So definitely a mixed bag, but I'll get to One Piece at some point, I promise. And then in the middle of the rest of this, we ended up getting Nintendo Direct, which also had a couple big announcements as well as a couple of big dates released for ones that hadn't necessarily had gotten one previously. So to start off, I guess we'll go with Pikmin 4 is officially going to be getting a release for 2023. The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom sequel is going to be officially getting a release date on May 12th of next year. And then for me personally, the fact that we have finally been able to get a release date as well as an official trailer for the next mainline Fire Emblem game, Fire Emblem Engage, which is going to be released out, I believe, in January with no, like, official set- oh, January 20th, perfect. Which is going to be really interesting, considering that it is treated as not only a mainline title, but a 30th anniversary product that's going to be introducing and revamping a lot of the main lords from all of the previous series over the past several decades. And honestly, I am would love to talk about that more, but this is definitely stretching on, but I can't wait for that to pop up in January. And then for a couple of sequels that have been announced, I mean, we ended up getting a My Dress Up Darling sequel has been officially like put in and it's already under production. So that's definitely something for people to look forward to. We're going to be able to get a Lupin the Third Part 3 release officially out on High Dive starting on September 25th as they are going to be releasing episodes in batches. So that's going to be really cool. The Pink Jacket era Lupin is definitely something that's uh, not necessarily interesting, but also something that I'm glad to see has an official release on side of a streaming site. So that's definitely like a nice thing to look forward to. And then for me, one of my current favorite running manga is officially going to be getting an anime adaptation, and that is Freyrin Beyond a Journey's End. And I believe I already talked about this once on the manga episode, but I definitely recommend people going through and giving this a read, considering that it is a straight-up medieval fantasy, no strings attached, no isekai, no reborn, no nothing, just straight-up, well-told, 
well lore and well detailed in terms of world building whenever it comes down to a standard fantasy story. So I will definitely give that a recommendation. Um, details on whether when this is going to come out. If I had to say, this would probably be coming out late next year or early in 24, who knows. But I'm definitely glad that at the end of the day, we are going to finally have the opportunity for Freyrin and her party to get an anime adaptation. So now on the main line, a show that recently came out in the past week, as well as something that I was able to go through and finish in two days, which... By comparison, the slow start definitely stopped me from going like full hog on ham to have me give me the opportunity to go through and finish this all in a day, but I was able to at least get it done in two, and that is officially on the next set of Triggers adaptations in Cyberpunk Edge Runners. I've heard nothing but, you know, mixed things about the official release of Cyberpunk 2077. Like a lot of people who haven't played the game, we just saw that it was a complete and unbridled buggy mess, considering on time constraints as well as how fucking ridiculous the video game industry, especially when it comes to AAA titles, is. So it's kind of unfortunate that you can't really give a lot of, uh, like, slack to those inside of CD Projekt Red. I've heard at least through patches 1.5 and 1.6, the game itself has been a lot, has gotten a lot better, and it's a lot more playable at this point. I don't think I'll ever like have the opportunity to get into it, but to be fair, what Cyberpunk Edge Runners was able to do is to get me heavily invested in not only the aesthetic but the world that all of our characters inhabit for this case, and so before I get into any spoilers on this podcast, I would definitely recommend you to just have the opportunity to go and enjoy yourself like completely blind no strings attached it is definitely something that is very trigger centric it is something that is balls to the wall action Imaishi and Yoshinari definitely bring their A game in terms of a project that they were able to have near full creative freedom to bring this world to life underneath their own circumstances and underneath their own constraints and they did a fantastic job bringing the vibrancy and the underbelly of Night City to life so full recommendation for me on this show, but before I end up getting into it, I would definitely like to talk about the team, especially the ones that are the core pieces to Studio Trigger as a whole. So, at least for the smaller pieces that were a part of Edge Runner's uh, production team, we end up having like a couple of people that have been a part of this crew like for a good uh, number of years. Uh, Masanobu Nomura, who is essentially a background art and art director for a good number of projects that he's been a part of since the late 90s, and he's been the art director for basically everything that Trigger has been involved with ever since their inception. Um, as well as giving a shout out to Hiromi Wakabayashi, considering that not only is he um, a good consultant in terms of not only script writing, but he is the creative producer as well as one of the publicists for Same Deal, almost everything Trigger has done. So at least for the rest of it, he started with his creative production lines in Garen the Gone when they were still, when this whole team was still a part of Gynax. And so he's still been one that has been a part of the team and definitely influential in bringing everybody's creative freedoms to life, as well as being one of the main producers to get all of these projects off the ground. The main two that I want to talk about today, which are two of the biggest pieces that are a part of Trigger's train of insanity, and that would be Yo Yoshinari and Hiroyuki Imaishi. Now, to start, at least who was the chief animation director uh, for this series. So we'll start off with Yo Yoshinari. He did the character design. He was the chief animation director. He did a lot of key and second key frames in terms of the animation, like leading into this series. And he ended up getting his start back in the 90s as well as a key animator for Victory Gundam. Or, yeah, what is it? Mobile Suit Victory Gundam. One of the many offsets, which I'm definitely not going to get into. Gundam is another series where it's like, yeah, 
I've seen two series, but that's not even fucking close to having any idea. I don't know where it started. I haven't watched the original Mobile Suit Gundam. I might watch the new... Right, it's Gundam Witch from Mercury. I will think about watching that, but I'm going to... I don't know. There's going to be so much shit coming out in the next three weeks. Everybody is going to be just ridiculously busy trying to keep up with all the high-profile titles that are going to be coming up. But back to Yo-Yo Shinari... He did end up getting his start for key animation on that. He ended up going through and jumping into him, uh, jumping into a couple of key animation jobs with Studio Gainax, considering that he did key animation and animation direction for, considering that he did key animation for uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion as well as End of Evangelion as well as the rebuild. So he's definitely like a really close confidant of. Hideaki Anno, considering the like good relationship they have between each other, and so we also ended up doing uh, some key animation for other projects in terms of like Jin Ro, in terms of Die Buster, and then coming back into Gainax, he ended up having his first, I believe, his first collaborative work for uh, like direction and animation direction with Hiroyuki Aimishi on the OVA Dead Leaves, which is also a ridiculous piece of insanity, and it, you can definitely like pinpoint like right there where. Imaishi ended up getting his style and like where all that Genesis came from with all that crazy wacky energy that he's been able to inject into all of his action scenes. Dead Leaves is kind of where it began, but that's beside the point. Um, he ended up doing his first piece of mech and character design on Garen Lagan, and he ended up going through and leaving to do a bit of key animation for the Kizumonogatari films, which was kind of crazy that they were able to grab him, but like his design work as well as his key animation, especially when it comes to the majority of like the midnight backdrops you can kind of find a, a bit of stylistic similarities between night city and the kizu films but he just did a fantastic job for everything that he was involved with on that project and then on top of doing key animation he ended up doing set design for kill a kill which i believe was his first major introduction to the project coming in on uh, studio trigger but then he ended up having his first opportunity to not only do key animation, but as well as doing storyboards for both Fully Cooley and Panting and Stalking. And then leading into Trigger's works, you ended up getting pieces of doing key and storyboard as well as chief animation direction for both Promare and Cyberpunk 2027. Or <laughs> 2027. That is way too fucking close, and I really hope that's not the case where we're literally that far off. Um, but he did end up having two... Uh, solo directing works on both Little Witch Academia and the most recent BNA Brand New Animal, both of which were trigger works that ended up coming to Netflix. So, Yoyo Shinari, in terms of character design and key animation, like he is a close confidant to everybody inside of this crew, and it's no wonder that he was one of the core components as well as one of the co founders of Studio Trigger to bring all this to life. And now we get to the big dog himself. So the director of Cyberpunk 2077 Edge Runners ends up going down to Hiroyuki Imaishi. So in this case, he also got his start on Gainax, and he was able to work uh, next to Yo-Yo Shinari in this case on all of the Evangelion properties in terms of NGE, in terms of End of Eva, in terms of the rebuilds. He did in-betweens and key animation for everything under the sun on those. And outside of Gainax, he ended up doing key animation for Slayers, a couple of the Lupin OVAs, a couple of the episodes for the original Full Metal Alchemist adaptation, as well as uh, key animation for a lot of the driving scenes on Redline. And while he was only able to do a couple of key uh, framing uh, a couple of key framing and key animation for both of the Little Witch Academia OVAs. He ended up doing key, he his first time uh, doing storyboards on a project ended up coming in uh, the Kare Kano adaptation being held by Hiro 
being helmed by Hideaki Anno. So he was able to do keys and storyboards for those episodes on the same deal, joining Yo Yoshinari on the team for Fooly Cooly. And then outside of Gainax, he was able to do that on his own part for a lot of the episodes for the original Black Rock Shooter OVAs, and you can definitely recognize a bit of his style coming out of that as well. And then once Trigger came into the play, he was mostly doing key and storyboarding for the Little Witch Academia television series after doing a little bit of help on the OVAs, doing a bit of key animation and storyboards for a few episodes on Darling and the Franks. We don't talk about that. And then he ended up becoming uh, the animation director for uh, BNA as well, uh, working under Yoshinari at the time. Um, but at least the first time he was able to get into the director's seat would have come at the hands of Dead Leaves, his, one of his first OVAs that he was able to go through, as well as be the head director of. And the biggest piece that people were going to recognize him by for another decade or so to come is that he was the head director for Tengen Topa Gren Ligon. And so that was an absolute crazy piece of animation that kind of, like, brought Studio Gainax, like, as one of, like, the, the heads and one of the faces of animation, like, in the 2000s. I definitely uh, remember that being one of the major recommendations, whether it was Mecha, whether it was heavy action, whether it was, like, a fantastic, like, out-there sci-fi story. Gren Lagon was always something that was on the forefront of everybody's recommendations leading into the 2000s. And then finishing off one of the last, the last project he ended up directing at Studio Gainax would have been leading up to Panty and Stalking. And... Now that I know that Panty and Stocking is going to be getting a sequel, it is one of the only pieces of Gainax that I still haven't watched to completion, and it's definitely going to be the one, considering all the energy and all the swearing and just the vulgarity that you were able to find in Cyberpunk Edgerunners, and seeing a handful of the clips that I've been able to get from Panty and Stocking, it is definitely something that I feel like is going to have the same energy, and I'm going to be really excited to at least have that opportunity to watch it, but that is way down the line. Once we ended up finally stepping into Studio Trigger's shoes, we, he ended up getting his first directorial piece inside of that studio on Kill la Kill, where everybody believed that Imaishi and Trigger were saving anime, like, way back in 2013. That's where a lot of the memes started popping up, and that they were a very publicized studio to be one of the only ones that were not only incredibly Japan-focused on their animation and their productions, but as well as to look outside of Japan as well to see what the worldwide audience was curious about and what exactly they could bring to the table to to make sure everybody was included. And so that was, I don't know, Kill a Kill is definitely a show that I remember enjoying a lot, but it's been nine years since it's popped up. And so I really have, yeah, like now after watching Cyberpunk, I definitely feel like I'm going to have to go back and like rewatch a lot of Imaishi's works because I just haven't been disappointed on, like, any of the things that he's directed so far. To top it all off, easily one of my favorite films of all time, he ended up directing out of Studio Trigger, which was also Promare. And then on top of everything else, you could definitely, like, from a mile away, spot his uh, directing style being present in the Star Wars Visions short, uh, The Twins. And that was the one where it was like, so what exactly could Imaishi do that was crazy and in space? How about cut a Star Destroyer in half with an uber-sized lightsaber? Absolutely insane. Only Imaishi could just look at that and look at the world and be and to bring his fandom into the fold and be like, yeah, no, I just want to cut a Star Destroyer in half. And it's like, you know what, dude, go for it. And so that was, like, the last major, like, mini-project that, that he was able to be a part of, like, leading into it. And after the success of Promare and Visions, we ended up getting Cyberpunk Edgerunners. So considering my non-relationship with just Cyberpunk as a whole, just uh, 
2077. Not like the cyberpunk genre itself is definitely an aesthetic that I really enjoy and I really like to see. Whether it's dystopian, whether it's like an optimistic version of the future, like regardless, whenever cyberpunk is involved, it gives so much creative liberty to anybody who is a part of that project to just go wild on all of their ideas and make something as creative and entertaining as possible. But in terms of cyberpunk 2077, it was just. I didn't feel like, like I was definitely curious and excited, especially with all the early trailers that came out of the game, how they were able to incorporate Keanu Reeves into it, and the fact that he was just so precious, and it got, he got on everybody's good side, and made everybody, you know, optimistic, and everybody for the rest of it. Leading into the weeks of its release, I heard people getting more and more concerned, and more and more just like, Daryl, it's like, it, it's the same deal as what I feel with Chainsaw Man right now, where it was just... All of the previews, all of the gameplay, all of the hype, all of the good favor that everything, including Keanu, was able to build up for this adaptation, not this adaptation, for this game and for this project, everybody was like way overly excited and there was no way that anything in the game would have been able to live up to anybody's expectations leading into it. And so on top of the fact that the buildup was so high and due to the bugs, the initial reception was so low, that gap just made the fall that much worse and that much harder when everybody was initially getting into the game. And that's all I heard. That is all that everybody was talking about. Unless you had, the way that Maxwell put it, unless you had a computer that was designed to fight God, there was no way that you would be able to go through and have like a positive experience with this. On top of the fact that when they released it on the PS4, the PS4 had absolutely no fucking way to process and keep the game running at a steady pace. And so they took it off the PlayStation Store, just like out of nowhere. I believe that there are definitely like more hard copies of the PS4 version floating around, but that's just like, oh boy, that was just a complete clusterfuck of an initial release. And so now that we are nearly two years after the initial release, the fact that it's still here and it's still getting better, it's still had like one of the largest, if not the largest player base uh, on Steam since its release. So it's still doing well financially and it's still putting out content and it's still putting out DLC, including the Edge Rudder DLC that apparently ended up coming out. And so you ended up getting Rebecca Shotgun, you ended up getting missions with Falco, just you had, you had names named after David Martinez. Like, goddamn, dude, like everything was just like popping up, uh, at least through this game. And I wouldn't be surprised that after the past couple of weeks that this has been released, that I wouldn't be, <laughs> that people will actually go through and have the opportunity to like re-experience Cyberpunk now that it actually apparently runs decently well. And of course, any game would run decently well if you've got another two years to work on it. But still, people are like really are getting invested back into it. And I'm really curious to see how that's going to like change everybody's overall perspective of the game and see if it actually brings people back in to give it a second chance. But now to talk about the anime. I would say the toughest part about this is that the first two episodes, uh, more, more like the first episode. The first episode de definitely gets you 
into the world and gives you like a decent perspective on David's like outlook on life, what he's going for, but it doesn't really give you too much. It's a very basic mother doing a lot of uh, work and overworking and like going into the underbelly of the city to like pay for her son's tuition and to give him a better life inside of a dark city. They definitely like fast forwarded that like way too quickly. And so by the time his mother dies in the first half of the first episode, there's not really, you don't really feel a lot. Like there's not a lot to go around. It's like, oh no, his mom's dead, and so now he's mostly just on his own. And thankfully, it it definitely moves past that. She's th she's always a constant reminder. Like she always is a reminder that he is still a human, not a human, not a chrome, not a cyborg, but more like he still has a handful of morals where he he still kills, but he only kills quote unquote bad people, or he only kills to get the job done, and he only kills the other like chromed out junkies that are inside of uh, Night City as well. So he still has that, and she's still like an ever-present, you know, reminder of it's like you're not, you're not too horrible of a person. You still kill all the junkies, and you still kill all of the pre other factions as long as you protect yours that are your own and your own people and your own family. So he still has that, but she was never really built up enough to let to give that enough impact when she ends up kicking the bucket in the first episode. But thankfully, the show starts to ramp up where it's like okay. We're getting over these initial plot points. We like we have to fast forward th through this so we can get into the depths of Night City and realize all of the crazy shit that happens inside of it. Considering how well uh, David like blows through, not only blows through but also kind of gets himself integrated into the world, which definitely helps out the fact since he's been upgraded with with his own Stravestian, I believe. It's I completely forget about uh, like what like Stravestian or. Stavistian, like something along those lines. It's the military grade spine implant that actually gives them the opportunity to use some of the powers inside the game, you know, time trials or bullet time. And so that was definitely something that I was kind of surprised to see in the sense that he was only able to get around with his mom and he didn't really have a lot of friends. He didn't really, like the only person he really knew was the Ripper Doc that kind of gave him all of the pieces and all the heavy cyber shows that Kurosaki that was uh, being distributed, as well as the ones that he was distributing around the school just for a bit of pedicab. And so he didn't really have a family. He, he did have a family before, but he didn't really have a lot to live for, especially after his mom's death, because he didn't really have many other close connections outside of her. And it was kind of weird because regardless of his punk status, he really it didn't really feel like he cared too much about his mom, which kind of also made her death fall a little flat. But once he ends up getting into this new crew, and he ends up meeting not only Lucy, but everybody else in the gang, including Maine, including Rebecca, Kiwi, Dorio, and like just that entire like cyber crew that he was able to go down, the Edge Runners, as it's poetically titled. Uh, it was really cool to see him interact and actually like build on this found family that was able to go through, as well as having the opportunity to grow and having the opportunity to just get close to somebody and find meaning inside of this, you know, underrealm of Night City. So Lucy's fantastic. Maine was a fantastic uh, father figure, like, leading into it. He is just a ridiculous two-ton badass that just carries hand cannons, like, around in his arms like it's nothing. Like, the mechanical design inside of this show, like, shout out to Yo Yoshinari, like, all the mech designs, I understand that they they had a little bit to work off of, considering that I would imagine the 2077 crew would have been able to give them a couple of references for a lot of the weapons and a lot of the augments that were being brought into the series, but just... The varying ways, the varying weapons, the varying augments that people can get chromed out with 
and just like become a part of their being where some try to stay more biological and some have just completely embraced the chrome side of the fact and become almost entirely cybernetic outside of their brains. But all the character designs just absolutely fucking pop inside of this show. Like everybody's got, everybody's unique. Everybody's got a fantastic personality that makes them distinct. And everybody is like just a fantastic, you know, character to be engrossed with inside of this world, including Rebecca, like on top of all the, uh, what is it? On top of the interviews and the rest of the info where it was just kind of like, yeah, can we like not keep the quote unquote lowly looking? And I have never, from scene one, I never thought Rebecca was anything resembling a lolly. And it's like, yeah, but they're either a lolly or a short stack. It's like, no, there are a lot of women that are below five feet. Like there are a lot that still like live inside of that, especially like for Night City, dude, you really don't believe that there's going to be anybody that has to be below six feet inside of Night City, even though you have all these augments. Like, really? Like, come on. With her chaotic, violet gremlin energy, the way that she just consistently mows out rooms of, like, chrome heads. It was, like, absolutely crazy. And she was just a fantastic bit of energy to, who was always fun whenever she came on screen. And if there was, like, no, but she looks like a child. And it's like, no, no. I can understand why, like, considering her short stature, as she is one of the smallest pieces inside of the cyberpunk universe. But if it's just, like... You look at her for one scene, and if you still believe that she is a child, then, like, I don't really know what to say to you. Or it's just like, dude, women be between four and five feet exist, and she is just a perfect example of that chaotic gremlin energy that is completely feeling at home inside of this universe. And then for the rest of the crew, I really did like how Lucy and David were able to confide in each other, and, like, what was bullshit and what was legitimately genuine. And I do kind of feel a little just kind of like, yeah, the we you just all hope, especially inside of the story, you just all hope that people can just build and communicate with each other and trust each other. And that was never going to happen inside of a world that is just completely head out on Chrome and, uh, you know, cyber augments, especially with the inevitability that nearly everybody is going to go into cyber psycho with all of the implants and all the stuff that they've been able to integrate into their body. It was just so tragic that, like, through episodes four and five that you get to see everybody, like, coming together and, like, rebuilding this family unit. And you really hope, you really believe that at some point, like, they will be able to escape Night City. They will be able to find a reason to live outside of this chaotic hellhole and that they'll be able to find an opportunity to just go somewhere else, anywhere else, and be happy with each other. But... Nobody inside of this world was ever safe, and nobody outs inside of this world was ever going to make it out alive, which is definitely tragic, especially I was hoping in episode four or five, but with the consistent downslope of everybody's sanity and everybody's well-being starting in episode six, like if I would definitely say that Cyberpunk's second half is definitely better than its first half, but the first half does a really good job in building the relationships and building, you know, all the bonds that all the characters are feeling inside of this found family. And it's going to make it hurt that much more that by the end of it, you know that nobody's going to be able to have a happy ending for this. And like going through all the comments and like for the people who actually played the game and had a different experience than I did, considering that I was able to go through into this blind, only knowing that this is like a dark underbelly of a cyber city that has been completely overrun by corporate mega conglomerates, as well as just high rates of crime and just privatized healthcare that comes with uh, guns and military support. 
the fact that all of the themes inside of the game still resonate as well as it does inside of the world definitely like shows a great amount of trust and compassion and a fantastic collaborative effort between CD Projekt Red and Trigger, and I'm so really happy that this was able to turn out the way that it did. But yeah, it's definitely one of those rare shows that ramps up as the show goes on. Like, if you, of course, which definitely like goes without saying, if you ask to give me a show that either starts out as a 10 out of 10 and could possibly go all the way down to 5, or if you want to give me a show that starts as a 5 and ends as a 10, it's like I'm going to go with the latter every single time. And that's, and thankfully enough, that is definitely, like, the, it got close to being as good as it was. Like, the only negative thing that you can, that I can really say about this show is that, one, it kind of starts out slow with a weird bit of pacing, and then it didn't have enough time to explore all the ideas that it had. Say, if it was as long as Arcane, if it was nine 45-minute episodes instead of 10 30-minute episodes, not even, like, 10 25-minute episodes, which, uh, yeah... Like, eight or nine, it, which would have definitely, like, ramped up the amount of production by at least a time and a half, but it's just, it definitely feels like if they had another episode or two to not only expand on the relationships between the characters and hopefully give them a little bit more of a reason to trust each other instead of, like, making everything go at such a rapid pace, that would have just made it that much better to give it to give us a little bit more downtime, just to give us a little more just soft and subtle moments with the rest of these characters. Would have been great, but, yeah... It's still good, more than good enough for with what it was able to accomplish in those 10 episodes. And then so going back to like Imaishi's style where there isn't a lot of kinetic or frenetic movement and energy like leading in through the first episode or two, or not even the, just the first episode. The second episode just fucking goes off the wall with its car chase. And then episode three, you end up getting everybody on their first mission to try and get the rest of it, where we end up getting Rebecca introduced for the first time, which is easily, like, one of the best girls. Wait, was she boy- Okay. And then also, another thing, the dub is fucking fantastic, and I think the reason why is that they're able to say fuck a lot more for the rest of it. Especially, like, leading this into a more, like, native tone, the fact that everything around here is just consistently vulgar and consistently off-the-wall batshit insane. The one thing- So I guess the one thing that I did miss is that- I watched the Japanese dub for the first two episodes and then switched over to the English dub on three onwards. And I'm like, oh shit, so... <laughs> so the only thing I regret about switching over to the English over the Japanese is that my favorite voice actress, uh, Tomio Kurosawa, ended up also doing Rebecca. So it's like, she gets even better. I might have to go back and like rewatch a couple of scenes with that. Like, that's honestly fucking phenomenal. Um... But then, yeah, just all of the, the stories that they're able to go through and, like, bring it bring about, especially with the dynamic energy that Inaishi, like, brings to the table. Everybody is on the same page. Everybody is, like, incredibly passionate about what they're doing. Everybody loves the world. Everybody loves the characters. Everybody loves the energy. Everybody just loves the derelict and just sad, depressing, and overall fruitless tone, no matter how much and how much effort brings into... And no matter how much effort the crew decides to go and bring in and, you know, evolve their circumstances, which, to be fair, not a lot of them are trying to just climb the ladder. They're just trying to survive and, like, have a fun time with any way, with the only ways that they know how inside of Night City. And it's definitely one of those themes that Lucy ends up bringing in one of the later episodes where it's Night City is just a cage of light. It is so difficult. Once you're chromed, once you have gone past the point of being fully human... You're just chained there. There is barely any ways of escape to have the opportunity to live a better life outside of that cage. 
considering that there's always going to be a part of you that you're going to leave behind. And whether or not you can live with or without that part is going to be the deciding factor on whether or not you feel like you have the opportunity to leave, feel like you have the opportunity to climb inside the ladder, or just survive inside of this world. And so I definitely appreciate the fact that, especially in terms of like video game adaptations that have been popping up over the past couple of years, that we've been getting more and more of those, like being brought to the forefront, being done by passionate studios that not only have experience with it, but also have, you know, a deep connection with the game as well as a whole. And so I definitely appreciate the fact that Studio Trigger, on top of everything else that they were able to accomplish inside of this world, that they were able to not only bring to life one of the most vibrant and dystopian cyber futures that we've been able to enhance and realize inside of this modern era, but the fact that they were able to put their own personal spin on it and make something that is not only chaotic and entertainment, sad, happy, but at the end of the day, just a straight up blast. So now I guess the thing that I'm going to announce like previous for this is that leading into October, it's going to be two years since I ended up starting this podcast. And there are just so many things that are going to be happening inside of that time frame, inside of October, that I'm just going to be remiss not to try and like squeak out every bit of and to try to squeeze out every bit of potential that not only the end of this season has been giving, not only the movies that have been popping up over the last two weeks, but everything that has been being built up leading into the fall 2022 season. There are just so many things that I want to talk about, so many opportunities that I'm going to be able to go through and enjoy and experience. And so at least for that, like not really... I guess kind of an anniversary celebration, I'm going to be putting up more than four episodes, or at least in this case, more than an episode a week leading into October, considering that there's going to be the recap for, you know, the summer season. There's going to be the expectations and the initial reactions for fall of 22. There are going to be a lot of films that are coming out in the next three weeks. There's going to be a couple of shows that are also going to be like leading into as well as making their debuts before the anime season, as well as a couple of projects like the Owl House Season 3 is going to be debuting October 15th. There is going to be so much good content. We are going to be fed for months on all of this fantastic, on all these fantastic pieces of entertainment that are going to be like leading into these couple of months. And we are going to be signing off on the end of this year with a blast, at least inside of the anime medium. And like for somebody who has been excited about this for months, there is nothing more than I can ask for. And hopefully the things that we watch will live up to the hype that, or at least live up to some of the hype that we have been able to generate over the past couple of months. And that at the end of the day, we just all have a good time. And I hope you do too. Cheers. Get away.